Do you like to go camping? We kind of had this argument at my house every year, right about this time when the weather's getting nice and it's not too hot and not too cold. The kids want to go camping. I kind of get them going a little bit. And then Steph is like, why camping? I mean, why do we want to go someplace where there's no electricity, no running water, sleeping in a tent, there's bugs outside, you got to walk to the bathroom. I mean, that's why we have a house. Why do we have to go camping? I mean, she protests. She likes to give me a bad time, but then she comes. Why? Well, because she wants to be with the family. It's not that she likes the tent. She just wants to be with the family. The truth is, even for those of us who enjoy camping, it's not the tent, right? I mean, one or two nights in a tent, maybe that's okay, but it's not really the tent. It's the proximity to nature. It's just being out and being with family and having those memories, or maybe it's a little bit of solitude and just getting away from the busyness and the craziness of life. As we continue our series, Hope for the 757, studying through the book of Exodus this morning, we make it to Exodus chapter 25. And by this point, God has rescued his people out of the Egypt. He has clearly communicated his standards for his people. And now the time has come for God to be among his people. And so a dwelling place is to be built. And God's choice for a dwelling place? Well, it's a tent. It's not a palace. It's not a temple. It's not even a house. He chooses a tent. We're going to see that this morning as we dive into Exodus 25. And as we look, we're going to learn a lot about worship, what worship, true worship really is. In order to do that, we're going to concentrate on the first nine verses primarily. So let's go ahead and start there. Exodus chapter 25, verses one through nine. It reads, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair and tanned ram skins, goat skins, akasha wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Now, it's important to remember that right at the end of chapter 24, we had this incredible scene. Do you remember it? Moses and all the Israelite leaders, they go up and they had this meal with God. They are able to behold the presence of God and dine with him. It's this incredible scene. And after that, Moses and the leaders, they go back down the mountain, back down Mount Sinai. And when they get to the bottom, Moses leaves the other guys there. And he says, hey, all right, I'm going back up to hang out with God. Aaron and her, you're in charge of the Israelites. And so Moses goes back up and he spends the next 40 days and 40 nights just hanging out with God. And it's during that time that God tells Moses, hey Moses, this is what you're going to have to go back and communicate to the Israelites. And so now Moses goes back and God has told him, this is what I want you to say. Anybody who's willing, anybody whose heart moves within him is able to contribute and give to the building of my sanctuary, to the building of my dwelling place. 
And think about this. This is a completely voluntary offering. Nobody is being forced to give, compelled to give. It's completely voluntary out of the movement, the stirring of the Israelites' heart. And anybody can give. It doesn't matter how much you have, how little you have, how rich you are, how poor you are. Anybody can give to this. And just think of that. These, these people were recently slaves in Egypt. I mean, they'd basically done nothing voluntary their whole life. Everything had been forced. Everything was compelled. Anything they've ever done. But these people, they weren't made to be slaves of Pharaoh. They are made to be servants of God. And as they're invited into serving God, God's saying, hey, I want you to do this because you want to. Because it's voluntary. See, true worship is willing worship. True worship is willing worship. It moves from within you to say, yes, I want to do this. I can't wait to give back to the God who's done everything for me. And if it's not that, I mean, if it's anything less than that, well, then your worship is hollow because it must be willing. It must be stirred within you where you look and you say, man, this is who God is. This is what God has done. And out of the overflow of my heart, I want, I desire to worship him. That's true worship. True worship is willing worship. It's kind of like if you've ever taught a group of students or anything, inevitably, sooner or later, a student will ask the question, is there going to be a test on this? Is there going to be an exam at the end? Is that going to be on the test? And when they're asking that question, you know what they're getting at, don't you? They really don't care one bit about the material that you're teaching. They just want to know, okay, do I need to know this so that I can pass the test? And that's a little bit disheartening because you love the material. You want them to love the material, but they don't. It's evident they don't care. They just want to be able to pass the test. And God is saying, I detest worship like that. I detest that attitude. I want a people who willingly love me, who willingly serve me with joy, with excitement, with praise. See, the people that I'm developing it's going to be willing. It's going to be voluntary. There's no more forced anything in my kingdom. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That God invites willing worshipers. Now, after that's established, God then gives very specific details for what these contributions are, however. He doesn't just say, okay, you know, you bring me, just give whatever you want, you know, whatever you have, whatever you find under your couch or whatever, you can go ahead and give that. No, God says, here's exactly what I want. And when he details what he wants, I mean, it's costly. It's the expensive stuff. I want gold. I want silver. I want the bronze. I want precious stones. I want these expensive skins. This is the kind of stuff that I want. And you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, these guys, they were, they were all just slaves in Egypt. And now they're recently free. They're wandering around the wilderness. Where could they ever get anything like that? You remember when... Uh, God told them, hey, you got to get ready tonight. You're going to leave tonight. What did he tell them to take? He told them to take all their goods, all their stuff, not food, not water, not like the best basic necessity, which in a moment like that, that's what you think you need. No, he tells them to take all the expensive stuff, the stuff that the Egyptians, because in God's mercy, he had just overwhelmingly blessed the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians were given some of the stuff to the Israelites. And so based on what God has already given to them, this is what they're to take with them as they're on the run. And this is now what they are to give back to God. Everything they are giving back to God is what God has already given them. But they do have to give it back. And we see this truth as well. 
True worship is costly worship. True worship is costly worship. Paul would tell the, tell the Romans, do you remember, that our reasonable act of worship is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, that we continually pour ourselves out to the whims, to the wishes, to the desires, to the instruction and commands of our God. It's not just based on what we want, what we think, whatever. No, it's all based on him. And that's not crazy. That's not over the top. That's not, wow, that's, that's something. You're going to give it all to him. No. True worship is costly worship. Anything less than that is silly. Anything less than that is crazy. We want to give all of what we have. Do you remember that time with David when God unleashed this pestilence against all of Israel because of David's sin? I mean, David, he wanted to show off that he had really built this mighty nation of Israel. And God, he didn't have time for that kind of an attitude. And so he unleashed this pestilence against Israel and 70,000 people died. And then right when God was about to just release his anger and just destroy Jerusalem, well, he relented because at that time, David called out to God and he, pray, and he prayed and he said, God, don't, don't take it out on your people. Take it out on me and my household. And then based on the counsel of his advisors, David went out to the land of this Jebusite. Now, a Jebusite is, is a Canaanite guy who lives near, uh, near Jerusalem. And so he goes out to the mountainous region there and he finds this Jebusite. And the Jebusite sees him coming and he says, oh, king, what, what have you come here to, to, to do with me? Why, why are you here? And David says, I've come here to buy your land so that I can make an offering to God. And the Jebusite man says, oh, my king, please, you don't need to pay me anything. Just take the land. May God receive your sacrifice. May everything go well for you. The land is all yours. And do you remember what David said? He said, I cannot offer a sacrifice to God that costs nothing. You see, we have this throughout all of scripture that true worship is costly worship. It costs something. David knew that. And we know it today. It costs us our lives. We, we give all of what we have and that's reasonable worship. Anything less is craziness. So at this point, God now, he tells the Israelites, it's time for you to build me a sanctuary. Yeah, it's going to be willing. I'm not going to make you do it. You're going to give out of your time. You're going to give your talent. You're going to give your treasure. And it's going to be costly. You're going to give the best of what you have. And you're going to build me a sanctuary. And when we think of a sanctuary, I mean, we think of some grand building. We think of a palace. We think of a temple. We think of something really nice, some piece of architecture that we want to go through and take a tour of or something like that. Well, God makes it crystal clear in the next chapter that the sanctuary that he has in mind is a tent. It's a tent. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Just let that sink in for a moment. The God of the universe is asking his people not to build him a palace, not to build him a castle, a cathedral, anything like he's asking for a tent. Now, it's a nice tent. I mean, you might want to spend a night or two there, but it's still a tent. It's a tent that God's asking his people to build him. Do you see how God descends, reaches down to his people, to humanity? You remember when the fact that God was dwelling in a tent really bothered David? 
Yeah, that happened too. Second Samuel chapter 7, it kind of retells the story. David, he's just burdened within himself. He's looking at this and he's saying, I live in this castle in God. He's dwelling in a tent. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant, the very thing that represents his presence among Israel, is residing in a tent. And so burdened within David's heart, he recognizes the inappropriateness of this. And he's bothered by it. And so he goes to the prophet Nathan. And he says, hey, Nathan, I'm looking at this and I'm living in a palace in the very presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that symbolizes his presence with the people where we meet with him. It's stuck in a tent. I got to do something about this. I got to build him a palace. I got to build him a house. I got to build him all these things. And Nathan, he says to David, oh, what your heart is telling you is, is good. You have a right spirit within you. You need to go ahead. You need to build him those things. And then God showed up and God said to David, David, don't you understand that since I first rescued my people out of Egypt, I've always been in a tent among them. That's, that's what I wanted. That's what I instructed them to build for me. And he says, oh, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. And God says this, and David is just beside himself as he recognizes God reaching down, descending, condescending himself to David. And he says, oh, God, there is none like you. Who am I that you would do this? this there's none like you. You are the sovereign one, the holy one. Isn't this the pattern we see throughout the scriptures? God condescending himself, reaching down to humanity. I mean, we see it in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who reaches down, who became flesh. That's what John wrote, isn't it? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tinted among us. I mean, this is how God communicates with his people as he reaches down to us. He comes down to our level to be in the midst of his people. This is what's happening now in Exodus 25, God coming down and being in the midst of his people. Because understand this, without descending to meet his people, there is no worship. You cannot worship God without God coming down to us. Why? Because we can never reach up to him. We can never ascend to him. We can never get to him on our own. The only way that we can rightly worship God is if God were to come down to us. And that's exactly what he's done. He's come down and he's tented among us in Exodus. And now today he indwells us. I mean, this is what God does. Even Solomon, he recognized this when he built the most grand, awe-inspiring temple that there ever was. He recognized the fact that God wasn't made for a temple. The guy wasn't just going to hang out and just kind of be contained there, that nothing man makes can ever contain the creator of heaven and earth. No, this is what God himself would say to the prophet Isaiah, that the earth is my footstool. Who can build a house for me? See, he comes so that he can be among us. This is what God tells Moses. The reason why I want to tent here is so that I can dwell, so that I can be in the midst of my people. He's not just coming because he wants the tent. You know, he said, oh, I just really want to dwell in the tent. It's not that God just really loves camping. He's like, oh, yeah, let me roast some s'mores and everything. This is going to be fun. No, God's heart is oriented toward his people. He wants to be among his people. You see the point, don't you? God is saying, I want to be with you. 
I want to be right in the thick of it, right among you, right in the middle of it all. I, I want to be around you and beside you. I, I want to be with you. This is the whole point. And so, God, we have this beautiful picture because there would be this tent and it's placed right in the middle of the 12 tribes of Israel, right in the middle of all of them. And so this is done on purpose because everything that's happened, the giving of the book of the covenant, the, the law that God has made with his people, even the, the rescuing them, it's all done so that they know how to love God, how to, how to love others. And now God's saying, I want to be right there in the middle of it all so that you can learn even more and be developed into the people that I've called you to be. Because this is the point. He's come so that he will be their God and they will be his people. And not since Genesis chapter 3 had God actually dwelt tinted among his people. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 3 for that. And so this is incredible and it's extremely important because now the people no longer have to try to worship God at a distance. They don't have to stay at the base of the mountain while God is way up here. No, God gives the law, but he doesn't give the law and stand up high and just kind of look down on his people. What does he do? He then comes and lives among his people. He invites them in so that he can be right among them, right in the thick of it all. This is the grace of our God. They're not worshiping at a distance, looking up at Mount Sinai anymore. God is right in the middle of it all. Because throughout this whole process, we see God's goal through this whole evacuation experience. And even before that, it was to birth, to rescue, and to develop a people for himself. And now he purposes to enthrone himself among them, to be with his people. See, God was never about just having a house made of gold or silver or bronze or all these kind of precious stones and metals and all that. His purpose was to be among his people because that's where all his energies, all his efforts, everything he's done, that's where it's all been focused toward. God's not about developing a relationship with a tent. He, God's not about, oh, I want to have this great relationship with a portable tabernacle or with some kind of stone altar. God's not about just having some house so that his people can come visit him a couple times a week. God is about people. We see that throughout this whole Exodus story. God's Torah, his, his law, his words, they aren't for inanimate objects. They are given for people. God wants a transformational presence with his people. And it's interesting because that Hebrew word there in verse 8, that, that verb there, that this dwelling that's being described, it's clear that it is a temporary dwelling with his people. But God's purpose in all this is for a permanent dwelling with his people. That's where it's all leading towards what's happening here in Exodus. It's a foretaste. It's a, it's a shadow of what's to come, a permanent presence with his people. This is just a temporary tinting. So with all of these details given, God then he's going to give precise instructions to the furniture that's to be inside the, uh, the tent. And so he gives 
specific instructions related to the building of the Ark of the Covenant and to the mercy seat. And this is the focal point and the holy place, the holy of holies, where it, the true representation, the symbol of God's presence with his people. He then will give details, specific details concerning the building of the table of showbread. Now, this table would have 12 loaves of bread on it. These, this, um, these loaves would be replaced every week. And they, uh, they represented the 12 tribes of Israel and how God was always present and providing for all of them. Everybody would be provided for. Nobody would be left behind. Then God would give detailed instructions into the construction of the golden lampstand. And the golden lampstand, it was placed in a dark room in the tent, and it was lit to provide light in that place. And so we could go through all these, and there's a lot to see there, and even how Christ ultimately fulfills even the furniture in the tent. But for time this morning, I, I want you to understand that as God gives all these detailed instructions about the tent, about the furniture and all of this, he's, he's putting into place what true worship really looks like, that it's on his terms. I want to read verse 40 to you, the, the final verse of this chapter, Exodus 25. It says this, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. This is essentially the same thing that he had said in verse 9. If you remember that, there's this emphasis here on God's instructions that you must follow the instructions that he's given because that's what worship looks like. It's obeying his instruction. What God tells us to do, when we do it, that's worship. Obeying God's commands, that's worship. When we worship God according to his directions, when we worship God according to, to God's desires and his intentions. So you understand that when we don't do that, when we decide that we're just going to follow our own taste, our own whims, our own preferences, our own likes, our own dislikes, our own desires, when we just follow what we think is best, well, then all of our worship simply gets filtered through us. That's not worshiping him. See, true worship, everything gets filtered through his word and what he wants. That is worship. And this whole principle, it became very important in the life and the history of the church. The reformers, back when they were protesting against the Catholics and they're looking at the Catholic church and they're saying, well, you're just doing everything based on what you want, based on what you like, what you think religion ought to be. And so you've adopted these indulgences and these relics, the deification of Mary and so much more. And so the reformers, they protest against the Catholic church and in so doing, they adopt what they call the regulative principle. And they say that all worship, it must be regulated through God's word, that everything we do, we have to filter it through God's word so that what we sing, we sing God's word. What we preach, we preach God's word. What we read, we read God's word. What we pray, we pray God's word. Everything we do then gets filtered through his word. So as we evaluate our worship today, we must ask the question, is it being filtered through God's word? It's not based on us. We don't evaluate our worship just like some kind of detached spectator saying, oh, let me see. You know what? If they would have added that here, if they would have taken some of that away, you know, that could have been a little bit better, maybe a little more powerful there if they could have done that. 
you know, we don't evaluate it based on a literary critic or a dietary critic thinking, you know what, here's what I like. I think if we could have made a few tweaks here, done something like this, that, that would have really raised the bar here a little bit. We don't evaluate it like that. No, we evaluate worship as active participants asking the question, was what was preached from God's word? Was this the basis for it all? Was it preached in context? Was what we sung, was it God's word? Was theology rightly infused into the song? What we pray, are we praying biblical prayers? That's how we evaluate it. If we evaluated anything less based on likes or dislikes, elevating some kind of style or looking at for some kind of pet program that is just really important to us, then we're not being regulated through God's word. We're simply being regulated through ourselves. See, understand this. How we worship determines who we worship. How we worship determines who we worship. We worship. If we worship according to our own preferences, our own likes, our own dislikes, continually just saying, well, this was good, this wasn't so good. If you added that, that would have been better. Do you have this? Do you have that? And it's not based in being filtered through God's word, then who are we really worshiping? What's really regulating our worship? Well, we are. And the reformers, they recognize that is a very dangerous place to be because how we worship determines who we worship. And there's another truth attached to that. Just as how we worship determines who we worship, who we worship determines who you will become. Who you worship determines who you will become. God, he tinted among his people because he wanted his life to be replicated in them. He wanted them to be like him. That was the goal. That's what he wanted. He wants their lives to be regulated by his standards, his values, his ethics, his love. He knew what was best for them. He knew that this is the best life they could have. He wanted his people to be like him. Now, the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit, he now tents in us, dwells in us permanently now. No longer, no longer just a temporary dwelling. It's a permanent dwelling in his people. Because God the Father desires that all of us become conformed into the image of God the Son. That we would become like him. Not like us like him. And when we walk obediently in the spirit, well, we become like him. But when we resist the spirit, when we walk away from the tent, so to speak, and we resist and we quench the spirit, well, then we don't become more like Jesus. We simply become a worse version of ourselves. And there's no hope in that. Hope comes in getting near the tent, so to speak. Hope comes in resting in the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you accept willing worship. 
you don't compel us, you don't force us, God, but you want it to be out of an overflow of who we are. And yeah, it costs something. Yeah, true worship is costly. But God, we want to worship you the way you want to be worshiped because we understand that who we worship determines who we will become. And God, we want to become more like you. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.